Folks, maybe you'd have that passage open. Um, keep an eye on, on what we've just read as I try to um, just help us uh, see what God might be saying to us in his word. Uh, let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, that way in which you've chosen to communicate with us and reveal yourself to us. We thank you too for those moments in your word where it reveals something to us of who we are, uh, what our weaknesses and foibles might be, that we might be more open to, to knowing our need of you and of your grace. Lord, we pray you'd be with us today. Help us to understand uh, this incident, this story, and to see how you want to to speak to us through it. Amen. We've been following Jacob for three previous sermons so far, so today's number four. And in those first three sermons, we learned uh, a few things about him. In the first one, we focused on his relationship with his brother Esau, whom he basically ripped off, uh, stole the birthright from him and his inheritance. Then we learned about his relationship with his parents, which, if you remember, wasn't massively healthy. He was his mother's favorite, and he deceived his dad. And you can see that the two parents aren't always or even often on the same page. And last week we learned about a different relationship. It's a, a new relationship For Jacob, we're beginning to see how God broke into Jacob's life. If you remember, we we thought together of that uh, stairway to heaven and how God appeared to him and told him, I am with you. My sense at the end of chapter 28 is that Jacob really does want to be with God. Um, There's still a lot of Jacob. If you look just down for a moment at those final verses of chapter 28, I'm not going to preach them, just point it out to you. Jacob still wants to make a good deal. Jacob seems to me to be a bit of a con man, a bit of a schemer, a second-hand car salesman type of guy. So whenever, even when he gets to know God, he he still wants to, to make sure it's all working out in his advantage. So he makes a commitment to God, but he makes it conditional. He says, yeah, I'll I'll be... You're, you're a man, I'll, I'll be with you so long as you help me out with food, clothing, safe passage. If you do all those things, then, verse 21, you will be my God. He's responding to God's grace, all right, and he is submitting to God. And I, I think you could say, if you wanted to, that Bethel might be the place of Jacob's encounter with God or, or his conversion. But I want to pause there for a second and think about what's really happening here. Jacob's a crook. We've seen that in his actions so far. Uh, Flick back with me a second to chapter 25, verse 26. This tells us about the moment when the two boys were born and when their parents named them. We're told, you remember, that Jacob, the younger of the two twins, was grabbing the heel as he... Uh, was born. Uh, He's called Jacob, which means grabber of the heel. But if you look at the footnote to that verse, we're told there that Jacob means deceiver. 
So he's a crook by name as well as by nature. It's unavoidable. That's who this guy is. But now he's met with God. So what's going to happen? He's a crook. He's met with God. Does this mean he's going to be straightened out just overnight? Perfected? Just instantly all those character flaws taken away and all plain sailing for Jacob, the man of God. Maybe you thought that's what was going to happen to you when you submitted to Jesus Christ. But experience has shown us that that's not how it works. We've submitted to God, we've surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ, but we're finding that our personalities and our characters are quite resistant in many ways to change and to growth and to transformation. Well, it's the same for Jacob. We'll see that, and we've already seen it in the passage that we've read. It's going to take many years, and it's going to take a, a variety of of difficult circumstances to begin to see glimpses of God's transforming work in Jacob, to take this crooked man and to straighten him out. The first place where God chooses to confront Jacob is in the sphere of human relationships. God challenges him, I think, in this passage in relation to an idolatry that he has regarding romantic love. And that's what we're going to be thinking about here today. When Claire and I went to Vancouver, it wasn't long before we became big fans of a, a local singer there. And some of you will have heard of her, Sarah McLaughlin. Um, she writes beautiful lyrics and has a voice like an angel, a very, uh, very easy uh, person to listen to. But let me read you the chorus of the song Push, taken from her 2005 album. She addresses her lover and she says this, You stay the course, you hold the line, You keep it all together. You're the one true thing I know I can believe in. You're all the things that I desire. You save me. You complete me. You're the one true thing I know I can believe in. In some ways, those lyrics are pretty unremarkable because they're they're a common enough sentiment that they're expressing our pop songs, our poetry, our soaps and our movies. The singers tell us and the actors portray for us with great drama how absolutely fundamental romantic love is, how absolutely dependent every human being must be on it. Without a romantic relationship of some kind, even the wrong kind, our lives are meaningless. That's what the culture tells us. It makes an idol of romantic love. This passage we're reading this morning, this next chapter in the Jacob story, shows how our hunger for love can become a form of slavery. Jacob's arrived, and and it's beautifully written again. I keep pointing this out to you. He arrives, but he doesn't know where he's arrived at the start of her chapter, he arrives in what he calls the land of the eastern peoples. It's only as we read on that we discover that he's arrived where he was always hoping to get to. Um, Turns out to be Paddan Aaron, 
Aram, this place where his uncle Laban lives. This place he'd been hoping he could find some refuge. And Laban does take him in as planned. So far, so good. But once Laban realizes, he probably recognizes in Jacob what we've been recognizing in these narratives. He's, he's a, he's a go getter kind of guy. He always makes sure that things fall in his favor. And Laban thinks to himself, well, I'd like to have that guy working for me. So in verse 15, Laban asks Jacob the question that your boss asks you on a regular basis. What would you like your salary to be? If you maybe haven't been asked for a while, but go, go back to work next week and see. What, 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 do you, what would you like to earn? Laban says. Jacob doesn't even have to think about it. One word answer. Rachel. I'll work for you for seven years if you give me Rachel. The Hebrew text says it actually it wasn't as clear in, in the NIV that we were reading as it maybe was in the, the, the text or, or the version of the Bible that Rebecca was reading. We're told that Rachel had great figure and that she was beautiful. So Jacob is absolutely smitten. He's gone hook, line, and sinker. He offers this seven years, and it's hard for us to get a handle on what, what that means. Is that appropriate or not? The commentators reckon that he's paying an enormous price here. He's probably paying around about four times the going rate. So if you worked for any more than two years for your wife, guys, um, you, your father-in-law drove a hard bargain. So there's something about he's really overreaching what the norms of the culture would be. There's something of, of desperation. But we're told in verse 20 that the seven, day, the seven years seemed like only a few days for him. And all of a sudden we're thinking, well, what a guy, you know? Seven years for his woman and he doesn't notice it. It's a Valentine's weekend kind of a story, isn't it? I hadn't planned this, by the way. We're here. Um, what a guy. But the shine comes off it a wee bit down in verse 20 when he goes to his father-in-law and he says, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to lie with her. Hard to know what's going on again in the culture, but I don't know. It just seems a little bit, uh, you know, imagine the, the prospective son-in-law going to the the, the father-in-law and saying, I can't wait to have sex with your daughter. Give her to me now. It's, it's not, not the way um, we would, would want uh, that relationship to be, uh, not the basis on which we'd like to see it starting out. So that's Jacob. The narrator shows us a guy who is overwhelmed by, by emotional and sexual longing for this woman. If you think about it, it's not, not surprising that Jacob would be this kind of a person. If we take the story seriously, remember, Jacob never had his father's love. Remember that from the story? His dad never loved him. And now he's left home, the one place where he was loved, his mother made a favorite of him. He's far from there. 
He's far from anything he knows, this young man, far from his. And, and although he's encountered God in that last chapter, there's no sense in my mind that he's, he's aware of God's presence and love with him at this point. I, I think he's arriving in Padden Aaron with a, a very low sense of God's presence in his life. There's no mention of him praying, of him looking to God. He's, he's forgotten, I think, what he so powerfully saw on his journey. And then he sees this beautiful woman and he's welcomed into her home and he says to himself, if only I could have her, my miserable life would be all sorted. Rachel will save me. She'll complete me. She's the one true thing I know I can believe in. Do you see how contemporary these ancient stories can be? We're invited by the artists and the the culture makers of our time to load all of our deepest longings and significance into into romantic love. If you listen to uh, the copy of Michael Bublé's 2009 album, Crazy Love, he'll he'll tell you in the words of an old, old song, you're nobody till somebody loves you. That's what the culture makers tell us, and by and large, we believe it. Our entire Western culture has taken this sentiment to heart. A word at this point to those in our congregation who are single this morning. It's easy and it's tempting to maintain a fantasy that if only... Mr. or Miss Wright came along our true soulmate then everything that's wrong with us would be fixed and we'd be healed that person when they finally come into our lives will save us, they'll complete us brothers and sisters it's not going to work No lover, no human being is qualified to play that role in your life. No one can live up to that. If you make an idol of another human being or what they could bring into your life, then you are headed for bitter disillusionment. I think it was Jacob's inner emptiness that made him so vulnerable to this idol of romantic love. And that's always the way with idolatry. It's when we aren't delighting in God, it's when we aren't finding satisfaction in him that we're prone to worship other things. We're thinking this morning about how God's beginning to work for Jacob's transformation and and the first thing he's having to do is to disabuse him of the notion that romantic love is is where the answers lie for Jacob this this God lets him down with disastrous consequences he's worked his seven years for Laban and then he asked for his reward and there was the customary great wedding feast um, And in the middle of the the celebration, Laban brings Jacob, his wife, 
I always find this one a bit hard to get my head around. You know, how did, how did that actually work? But my sense of it now is that these are, these are long extended parties and the wine doesn't stop flowing. So there's, there's a bit of wine in the mix. There's a, a veil, as you know, from uh, that Middle Eastern sort of a culture. And, and maybe if it's under cover of night, you can sort of see, okay, I can see how Laban maybe managed to pull this off. So Jacob goes to bed with his wife and he has sex with her. But then there's this dramatic twist in the tale. Verse 25, when morning came, there was Leah. I mean, I, I, I just, I don't know how you, what you make of a moment like that. In the full light of day, Jacob looked and saw that he had consummated a marriage with Leah, the unattractive older sister of Rachel. And he's furious. Goes to Laban, what's this you have done to me? Sorry, mate. That's just what we do around here. Always marry the older girl off first. But if you work for me another seven years, you can have Rachel too. What happens when the schemer gets out schemed? What happens when the, the cheat gets out cheated? Begins to see what, what cheating does to the folks around him. Jacob submits to another seven years because he does want to marry Rachel as well as Leah. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller references this story. And he says, We learn here that through all of life there runs a ground note of cosmic disappointment. He says, You're never going to leave a wise life until you understand that. Jacob said, if I can just get Rachel, everything will be okay. And he goes to bed with the one he thinks is Rachel. And literally the Hebrew says, in the morning, behold, it was Leah. No matter what we put our hopes in, in the morning, says Keller, it's always Leah and never Rachel. The note of cosmic disappointment. When we choose things other than God to put our hope in, the moment of disappointment is only t- moments away. Idolatry is ravishing, ravaging Jacob's life. But, but I hope uh, as we read the story, you had a great deal of sympathy for Leah in all of this. The narrator tells us only one thing about Leah. We're told in verse 17 that she had weak eyes, and that's kind of hard to, to work out what that means. might mean that her eyesight wasn't as good as Rachel's, but the way it's uh, juxtaposed uh, with Rachel's beauty, it, it makes us think, well, probably not that. Maybe, maybe she was cross-eyed. M- maybe, literally, she wasn't much to look at. The point's clear. Leah's the unattractive one. 
When the postman brought cards to Laban's home on Valentine's Day, they were all for Rachel. There were none for Leah. Leah lived her whole life in the shadow of her stunning younger sister. And Laban, this explains his scheming. He knew that no man was ever going to offer him money for her, for Leah. And for years he was wondering how he could could pass her off so that he could cash in on Rachel. And here, here in Jacob, he'd found, he'd found the answer. But look what this means for Leah. The daughter who, I'm going to guess, knew that her dad didn't love her. If he's treating her like this in this one incident, I'm going to guess that she knows full well that her dad has no love for her. The daughter that nobody loved becomes now the wife that her husband didn't love either. Verse 30 tells us, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Leah's the girl that nobody wanted. We, we, said, to her, we said when we thought about Jacob, we said he probably has a big hole in his heart, a big lack a big want for love. Well, Leah will be exactly the same. Different family, same story. And she responds actually pretty much in the same way as Jacob. She too makes a God of romantic love. Jacob's love, verses 31 to 35. We didn't read them, but, but skim them while I'm talking here. They're some of the most desperate verses in the Bible. They tell the story of this wife's desperate search for her husband's love. She is married, but there's no no love for her. What's Leah doing? She is pursuing happiness and fulfillment through traditional family values. Having sons, having sons was the currency in those days. If a woman could only give her husband a son, then she'd be loved. So what does Leah do? She has one son and then a second son and then a third son and a fourth son. Jacob, if only I give him sons, he'll save me. He'll complete me. But instead, every birth pushes her further and further down into her misery. Every single day she longs to be in the arms of the man she loves, but sees him with her younger sister. Every day is another knife in her heart. A word to those who are married. If we put all of our hopes and the weight of all of our expectations onto our wife, or her husband, we will crush them. It'll distort your life and your spouse's life in a hundred ways if you do that. Because no person, not even the best person, was made to fulfill you, to give your soul all that it needs. If we do this, we'll all start thinking that we've gone to bed with Rachel and we'll discover that we've gone to bed with Leah. We will be disillusioned and disappointed. 
I don't want you to mishear me here this morning. I'm not saying we should strive to or hope not, you know, strive to or not hope to love our husbands and our wives dearly. Of course we should. But set them free from the burden of being the answer to everything. They're not made for that. The living God is. And only he is. Go back to him. And set your spouse free so that you can learn to love one another without the weight of that expectation. Lee is the one person, I think, in this sad story who makes some spiritual progress. And we see it at the very end of her story, the last verse of the chapter there. At the birth of her fourth son, she says in verse 35, this time I will praise the Lord. It's almost like it's a a defiant cry for me. This is different. On the previous three births, she talked either about the son that was born to her or about her husband because she was always hoping that this new son would get her some love from her husband. But this time, there's no mention of husband or child. It's like she's taking her deepest longings off of, of these sons she's having and of the husband. And instead, she's putting them where they rightfully belong. On the Lord. Laban and then Jacob have stolen this woman's life from her. But if she set her hope on the Lord, her life is returning to her. I said last week that these stories only make sense in the light of the Jesus story. What's, what's this got to do with Jesus? What's Leah got to do with Jesus Christ? Well, this, this fourth son, this Judah whom Leah's praising God for, we're told in Genesis 49 that, that it's through him that the, the true king, the Messiah, is going to come. God has come to the girl that nobody wanted, the unloved, and she's made, he's made her the ancestral mother of Jesus. Salvation is going to come to the world not through the beautiful, longed-after Rachel, but through the unwanted, unlonged-for Leah. And it doesn't end there. Because when he finally came, Jesus Christ was so much the son of Leah. So much the unwanted one. Born to peasants, birthed into a feed trough. Isaiah the prophet says this about him, that he would have no beauty that we would desire him. John tells us in the opening chapter of his gospel that this son of Leah came to his own and his own didn't want him. And at the end, his life ends with a cry to his father in heaven, Father, why have you forsaken me? Tell me this. Why would God come and choose to be a son of Leah? 
Why did Jesus Christ come willingly as the man that nobody wanted? Out of love for you and for me. He died in our place. He took upon himself our sins. Friends, stand before the cross of Jesus Christ this morning in your mind's eye and see the depths and the length of his love for you. And let that love finally detach your heart from its, its grasp on other people and other things. Make him your lover. And whenever we see Jesus Christ in that light, then, then we, we finally stop trying to redeem ourselves through romantic love. We stop trying to redeem ourselves because we see that we've already been redeemed. We stop looking at that person or for that person, hoping that they'll save us and complete us because we know that we're already saved and that he's well on his way to completing us. Jesus Christ, the man that nobody wanted, he saves us He completes us. And he's the one true thing we know we can believe in. Let's pray. Father God, we're reading this Jacob story, but we see our own lives writ large all over it. We too are people who have encountered you, but who remain in desperate need of transformation. And Lord, this morning we've thought about this particular issue of how we allow our our healthy and our natural desire to be in loving relationships with one another, how we allow that to become a, a god or an idol to us. We imagine that this is the place where all the answers lie, where all the longings of our heart could find their fulfillment. Lord, we pray that if that is a problem for us, that we'd be willing for your transforming work. Lord, just as the surgeon cuts deep to remove the cancerous growth, Lord, we pray that we would be willing for you to work deeply in our lives if surgery is needed. Lord, free our hearts from the things that we've given a wrong affection to. 
that we might find our heart's home in you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.